Turn in your Bibles, please, to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Before we read our text, let me just uh, mention that we do have a, a few things to uh, a few things planned after I finish preaching. So, um, if you were planning to like duck out immediately after I preach, uh, just wait a second uh, because we won't quite be done uh, after the sermon is complete. An hour or two from now. Just joking. Okay, Galatians chapter 4, let's begin reading in verse 8. Galatians 4, 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, this morning we, as we've just sung, are enamored with your greatness, your power, your righteousness, your justice, and your loyal love to your people. But I'm sure I'm not alone in coming away from some of the lyrics we just sung thinking, well, would I follow Christ anywhere? Is it true that there's nothing I want more than you? The truth of the matter is, this week we have convinced ourselves through the whispers of the enemy that we do need Jesus, but we also need something else. That Jesus is good, but maybe not good enough, and I have to earn my way to please the Lord. So many lies that we've believed this week, and Father, we ask that you would forgive us for that. Thank you for Christ and for his death on our behalf. 
for his taking our judgment in his own body on the cross so that we could be right with you. And Father, as we examine your word and, and hear your heart for us, I pray that in the ways that we've strayed from the gospel, in the ways that we've strayed from our relationship with you, our Father, in the ways that we have laid aside the true joy of knowing you in favor of the pleasures of this world, in the ways that we have alienated ourselves from your people, I pray that you would forgive us and cause us to return and that Christ would be formed in us. Father, we pray for Pastor Guy as he continues to minister uh, overseas. I pray that you would uh, pour out your grace in his heart and that he would find joy in you even in this moment and that as he ministers that you would bring fruit uh, from that ministry and bring him back safely to us, Father. And uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When Gandalf the White, yes, this is a Lord of the Rings illustration. <laughs> I knew there would be some groans. When Gandalf the White and the Fellowship of the Ring arrived at the fortress of Theoden, king of Rohan, they knew something was dreadfully wrong. Somehow the mighty king, master of horses and ruler of a vast warrior nation, had become a shell of his former self. The man who had once wielded a heavy broadsword while seated atop his majestic stallion uh, could now barely prop himself up in his wooden throne. His voice had hollowed out. His features were gray and haggard. His former courage replaced with a cynical cowardice. In late days, Theoden had inexplicably downgraded Rohan's military readiness, retreated into himself, alienated his own family, and inexplicably imprisoned his own royal heir to the throne. It didn't make sense, but Gandalf immediately discerned the cause of the death spell hanging over his longtime friend. Theoden's advisor, Grima Wormtongue, skulked in the shadow of the throne, whispering lies and suspicions in the king's ear. Wormtongue play-acted as though he was at the service of his king, but he was really a creature of the enemy, planted in the royal court in, in order to rot it out from within. Kind of sounds like the church, doesn't it? I mean, I... I jest, of course. But the purpose of a fantasy story like The Lord of the Rings is to display in bold relief and to sort of exaggerate the features that we see in everyday life, in our relationships, and in our institutions that we participate in in our real life. And the truth of the matter is that even in the embassy of the great kingdom of God, known as the local church, God's royal priests endowed with power from on high and equipped to do battle royal against the forces of spiritual darkness, once brave and upright, once joyful and courageous in the work of the Lord, sometimes fall under the trance of a whispering worm, a demonic lie that clouds their vision of the goodness of God, that shrivels up their happiness in Christ, that separates them from their brothers and sisters, that shackles them in a self-condemning slavery, a spell from which we can only be awakened by gospel truth. 
you know what I mean. You walk into church. I'm sure most of you, if you've been Christians for a long time, you walk into church and you just feel like, I don't want to be here. I, uh, people are scowling. They're yelling at the little kids. They're rushing from this responsibility to that responsibility. The joy is gone. It's all duty. You can feel the spiritual heaviness, the lack of grace, the sense of failure, this cloud of I will never measure up and regain the joy that I once had in Christ. This is where the Galatian believers found themselves, folks. They had been redeemed by the blood of Christ, rescued from slavery to the spiritual powers. They had been endowed with the Holy Spirit's presence and power, blessed with the joy of knowing that they were justified sons of God and heirs of the royal promise, but then false brothers sneaked in to spy out the liberty that they had in Christ, and it just sucked the joy and the grace and the freedom out of the room. And just like Gandalf, in a desperate, jealous zeal, had to shout down the lies and break the spell of the enemy in the life of King Theoden, so Paul is going to do in the lives of the Galatian believers. He's established his authority as an apostle. He's explained the amazing gospel of Christ. And now he is going to make a personal appeal to them. Wake up from your nightmare. Come back to the Lord. Come back to the gospel. If I can mix metaphors for those of you, uh, most of you, who don't appreciate the Lord of the Rings and would rather watch a romantic comedy, this is Paul standing outside in the rain, outside the Galatians' apartment balcony, beckoning them and pleading with them to finally see reason and turn back to the Lord. Here we see Paul's heart for them, a heart of compassion and desperation and grief and longing. And that heart, Paul's heart, is sort of like a window into God's heart for the Galatian believers and God's heart for you today. God wants to break the spell. He wants to set his children free from the works of the law. He wants to restore the joy and the the fellowship and the blessing of knowing that we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is God's heart for you today. And in order to draw you back to him, he's going to ask three rhetorical questions. And in fact, you can see them right here in the text, and you may even want to underline them. There's one in verse 9. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Then again in verse 15, what then has become of the blessing that you felt? And then again in verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Now, I want to help us remember and and really understand what these questions are asking, and so I've sort of reworded them. Uh, But I want to go back over them, each of them, one by one this morning. Here's the first question from verses 8 through 11. How can you go back to slavery? How can you go back to slavery? Think about what Paul has already argued in this letter. If you're a Gentile, you grew up enslaved to the elemental spirits, the spiritual forces of wickedness that scheme and plan and structure the world in a way that that militates against the knowledge of God, that participates with evil people. And, And that's what he means by this phrase, the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. You were serving gods who are not really gods at all. 
But here's what he had argued in the previous text. Even if you were raised as a Jew, as a part of the covenant people of God, it's the same thing. Until Christ came, both Jews who were condemned on the basis of the commandment, they had the law of God, but they didn't keep the law of God, and the Gentiles who were condemned because they were outside of the law of God were both shackled in slavery, and the same is true today. Whether you grew up in a religious home, a home where the Bible was often opened and revered and read, or a pagan home, a home that was filled with violence and wicked partying and spectacular sin, or somewhere in between, it doesn't matter. All were enslaved to the elemental spirits, these Uh, spiritual forces of wickedness. You didn't know God, but then something happened. You met God. Somebody opened his mouth and told you how Jesus had come and how he had taken your place and obeyed the law on your behalf and then taken the curse of the law in his own body on the cross and how how God had raised him from the dead and you were convinced of your own sin in your heart and you realized that there was no other way to be saved and be made right with God and you desperately called on the name of the Lord and the Holy Spirit gave you the gave you new life in him and you had been and you were rescued from slavery and adopted as a son of the living God and you became an heir a royal heir of the blessing of Abraham and Paul says you came to know God or rather you came to be known by God that is you entered into a personal relationship with God where you had fellowship as one of his children the spirit of God freed you and if you've experienced that you know what it means to have Abba Father echoing in your heart you remember that from last week you know what it means to be known and loved by the most wonderful supreme powerful and good being ever to exist. But in view of that reality, he asks, how can you go back again to slavery? How can you return again to be enslaved by these elemental spirits? The Galatians might have said, Paul, hey, wait a second. We haven't gone back to slavery. We didn't go backwards. We went forwards. We used to be idol worshipers, and now we're keeping the law of the word of God. And Paul has to respond to them, essentially, embracing the law of Moses is the same as the slavery that you were experiencing when you had no idea who God was. There's no difference between the slavery of idolatry and the slavery of legalism. They look different, but they are the same. How can you turn back? He says, if, if you go back to the law, you're, doing, you're going back right to the same type of slavery that you were going back to before. You say, how can that be? How can it be that legalism, the dependence on the works of the law, on my own performance to please God, how can it be, because I'm living a much more upstanding and moral life, how can it be that that's the same as when I was bowing down to an idol? That's crazy. But if you think about it, they're very similar. In the pagan idolatry that these Galatian believers had grown up with, you They were using techniques, rituals, magic to bend the will of the spiritual powers to their own will. It's called the manipulation of spirits. You're using your acts and your deeds to obligate the divine to your will. You do what I want you to do, and I've figured out a way to get you to do it. That's no different from a legalistic spirit. A legalist is is doing the same thing. He's using performance and ritual and obedience to a law to say, God, see, see what I'm doing? Now you have to do what I want you to do. And in both cases, it's enslaving because here's what you're doing. You're trying to make a deal with God, but God is not interested in making deals, and he he doesn't need anything from us, folks. 
So God's not the one making deals. There's only one person. There's only one being who's out there making deals, and that's Satan. So if you're in the business of making deals, you're in the business of making deals with the devil. And, and, and Paul says, you know what that's like, and, and now you know what it's like to be God's son. So why would you go back to that? Why would you go back to slavery? There's something in us that loves the slavery of a law that we can achieve. I, I can't keep the whole law, but if I can pick and choose which rules are keepable, which rules perhaps are external enough where other people are going to see that I've keep, kept them, where I can keep score, then that law all of a sudden seems within reach. And so we lure ourselves away from the simplicity of the gospel of Christ because we want to we be in control. Reminds me of uh, Jan Martel's award-winning 2001 novel, The Life of Pi. Uh, the narrator and main character of the story, Pi Patel, uh, interrupts the story early on in the book, and he, he starts to defend uh, the fact that he had grown up as the son of a zookeeper. And uh, people obviously would say, uh, zoos are immoral, it's wrong to put this animal behind a cage, and and, and to those people, he says, listen, no, the animals love the cage. That's an area where they have delicious food. They have an area where they can roam free without fear of predators and rivals. They remain undisturbed. They love it. Open their cage, and they will panic. They don't want the wide open spaces of the wild. And uh, I don't, I'm not a, a veterinarian. I don't know anything about animals, really. I'm just trying to keep my son's lizard alive while he's at his grandmother's house. But he makes a very compelling case, and, and he may be right. I'm not sure. But the truth is that many animals don't thrive in, in captivity. They might like it. I, I don't know. They might prefer it, but it will kill them. Now, zoo animals aside, this is the way we are, isn't it? We love the law. We love giving ourselves something to do to earn God's favor. It makes us feel like we're in control. And if we're in control, we feel safe. We don't want to have to trust somebody else to believe that God is good for his own sake and not because he sees something in me that impresses him. And so we go into our legalistic cage and we shut the bars and we stay enslaved. But the truth is that we cannot survive, folks, in that captivity. And eventually, the very thing that makes us feel safe and in control and proud and accomplished and like God loves us, that's the very thing that's going to keep us from a relationship with him. That's what Paul says in verse 11. He says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. He's saying, if you do this, if you, can, if you continue to embrace a gospel of Jesus plus, that demonstrates that your experience of the true gospel must not have really sunk into your soul and you are actually still stuck in your sins. Here's what I think Paul is doing in verse 11, and he does this a lot of times in his letters. What he's doing is he's saying, hey, Galatians, wake up. You are doing something that Christians do not do. You are acting in a way that Christians do not act. And I am thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that I may have labored over you in vain because you're not showing the evidence and the signs that you really are a believer in the gospel at all. Real believers don't walk that path, so stop 
flirting with it. I wonder this morning if after coming to know God, or rather being known by God, you have been tempted to build a little prison around yourself called the works of the law. And by the way, that may be the law of Moses written in the Bible, or it might be some other law that you've constructed around yourself, some way that you are entombing yourself in a false belief that God's love for you is changeful and dependent upon your own ability to hop to and get things done. Here's what Paul is saying with this rhetorical question. He's saying, return to your father. Come back. Come back to a relationship where you are close to the God who knows you. Find your way back to the place where your spiritual life is a life of relationship with a person instead of a life of rules in a prison. Remind yourself that you are a son of God in Christ. So, friends, here's what that means. It means when you read the Bible, it's not first and foremost a spiritual discipline. It is a moment of fellowship between a father and a son. It means that when you experience trials, it is not first and foremost an obstacle to be quickly overcome. It is a moment of loving discipline in which your father compassionately but firmly shows his zeal for your growth and your maturity. It means when you pray, it's not first and foremost a labor on behalf of a sick friend or a family member, but a moment in which the father listens patiently to the needs of his child. I I know that you're earthly father did not set the perfect example of this no matter who you are in some cases he might have he may have failed miserably but then you came to know god you came to be known by god eagerly search the scriptures not to gain knowledge of facts or theology but to learn who your father is return to your father he's saying How can you go back to slavery? That's our first question. Our second rhetorical question occupies all of verses 12 through 15. Question one, how can you go back to slavery? Question two, how can you go back to misery? How can you go back to misery? Reading verses 12 through 15, you can just hear Paul's grief, his sense of loss on behalf of the Galatian believers. He says, become like me in verse 12. What he means is, be free from the law. Be, be, enjoy your sonship as a son of God and as an heir of the blessing of Abraham. He says, I became like you. I laid aside my Jewish identity and became outside the law so that my righteousness, my whole identity, might no longer be in my ethnic background or in my law keeping, but only in my union with Jesus. So become like me. I became like you. And then he reminds them in verses 13 and following of his first of the first time that they had met. Now, this is a little bit of speculation, but I think it's I think I'm on solid footing when I speculate along these lines. If you go back to the book of Acts and you go back over Luke's account of when Paul first met the Galatian believers, you'll find that Paul actually nearly died during this season of his life. He was stoned and left for dead in one of these cities, and I'm sure he had many other trials in the other cities in which he was ministering. I imagine he was pretty black and blue when he met those Galatian Christians, pretty beat up. And maybe that's the bodily ailment that he talks about in verse 13. I'm not sure. Either way, though, he says, remember that first encounter. Here's a guy traveling around with his friend Barnabas, He's been kicked out of the synagogue. 
Even those weird Jewish people with their strange customs didn't want him. And then he comes to the Gentiles and he says, hey, uh, he, he's got bruises and cuts all over his face. He's got blood stains on his clothes. He looks half dead. And, and he has the gall to tell these people that he's just now meeting. I have an important message from God that's going to turn your life ups, upside down and it's going to make you eternally happy in him. Like, how believable would that be? Not very. And, and, and sure, he shows these incredible signs proving the presence of the Spirit and his authority as a messenger of God. But you're thinking, you're, put yourself in the Galatian sandals. You're standing there, and you're looking at this guy, and you're thinking, well, that sounds very good, but I don't know that I want to end up where that guy is because he looks like he's been really through the ringer. And that's what it was for the Galatians. But even though his condition, his bodily weakness was a trial for them, it tested their ability to believe what he said, they still received him. They still believed him. They welcomed the message. They gave themselves to the God Paul preached. They hung on to his every word. They rejoiced at knowing the God that was pouring out his blessing on them in Christ. Paul says, you, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. That's how loyal you were to the message I was preaching. And then the false brothers came. And they say to the Galatians, you know, that's great. You have Jesus. That's important. You're feeling the blessing, but there's some fine print that you need to know about. You have to be circumcised. You have to keep the law of Moses in order to really please God. And immediately, it's like the fragrance of gospel grace is just sucked out of the room. And Paul says, what happened to that sense of blessing? In other words, how can you go back to misery I mean, remember that time when it didn't even matter that I was before you in this bodily ailment. It didn't bother you that I had a, 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 walked with a limp and had a fat lip and, and looked like I had just come back from the dead. You were just overjoyed to know the Lord. You were just happy to know that God loved you because of what Jesus had done. What happened to that? Do you really want to be like that? You're miserable. Where's the sense of blessing that you felt? Where's the zeal and the joy and the loyal love? Listen, don't misunderstand me. Christians are no strangers to sorrow and grief, and I know you all know that. Some of you are walking through that. You're hurting because your daughter's angry with you, or you're grieving because your spouse left you. You, could, you don't have anything to, any recourse, nothing you could do about it. You're hurting because your sister died, and every morning you wake up and you remember, and it feels like the wound was ripped open again, and you're going through trials and difficulties. Christians are no strangers to sorrow. And the last thing I want to do is communicate there's something wrong with you if you're going through grief or loss or difficulty or, or trial. But Christians who walk around in misery and hopelessness and despair, that's not good. Don't be blown around by the breezes of your feelings and your emotions. Sometimes you wake up and you just feel a little bit out of sorts, and that's okay, and that's not a big deal. Don't be blown around by the winds of your emotions. But if day after day, week after week, month after month, you find yourself lacking the feeling and the sense of blessing, of knowing that you are in Christ, something's wrong. You, you've lost sight of the gospel of grace of God in Christ, and you need to get back somehow, some way. By the way, the same thing goes for churches as a whole. If the culture of the church is one of misery and hopelessness and despair and suspicion and fear, if we feel like we can't be ourselves, like we can't be real around each other, like nobody's got our back, 
then something's seriously wrong. And it may be the case that we've lost sight of the good news. You know, I, you know that I don't mind telling you like it is. And sometimes after a Sunday service, people come up to me in the lobby and they say, hey, that, that message was really convicting or you, you stepped on my toes a little bit. And I think most of the time people mean that as a compliment. And I appreciate that. And I'm glad to know that conviction is taking place. But like Paul, all I really want to see is that people are glad in Jesus Christ. I mean, that's my goal. That's my hope. I want to see my children and my wife and my friends and my co-laborers and my church family resting joyfully in Jesus. When we're really in the grasp of gospel grace, when it's our controlling principle, you can tell. Slights and criticisms don't land. They just kind of roll off. We hold very loosely to our possessions and our personal plans and our agendas. We notice the grace of God at work in others. We easily overlook their faults. We see the beauty of God in the things that he's made. We quickly take our cares and our worries and our pains and our griefs to the Lord because we know that he wants to listen to our prayers. Well, what about you? How is it that you've begun to go back to misery or to despair, to a sense of never measuring up, not being loved or known, missing out on life's best? How is it that you've reached a place where you see God loving on everybody else, but you just feel like, well, maybe he's a little annoyed with you? I bet if you did a deep dive diagnosis on your heart, here's what you'd find. I think you'd find that you've got a leak. The gospel's sort of leaking out. Something else is leaking in. You believe in Jesus, but you've noticed a pattern in the cultural and political landscape of the USA, and you've been watching things on the news, and things are going downhill, and if we don't pay attention, and if we don't do something quickly, this whole country is going to go down the tubes, and the church is going to die, and what's going to happen then? This is so bad, and I'm so upset. Whoa. Do you think you might have lost your perspective there? Don't let that, listen, it's important to pay attention to what's going on in the world and to participate in public life, but don't let that stuff distract you from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and take away your joy in the Lord or let you think for one second that Jesus didn't prepare his church for this. Say, I believe in Jesus, but I've got this burden for ministry and there just aren't enough hours in the day and I think maybe I went and studied the wrong thing and I should have gone to Bible college and seminary instead of learning how to code and I think I've just messed up my life and I don't know what I'm going to do and if I could just become a preacher, then I could have joy or if I could just do more ministry, then I could have joy and there's no way out. Wait a second. What happened, do you remember, when you just felt glad to be saved? When you just felt thankful to be loved by God, what happened to that? There's nothing like knowing that God sees you as his beloved child. When you decide, when we decide that something else is more important or that Jesus just doesn't take us all the way and we need something else in order to be happy, of course we're going to be miserable. Here's what Paul's implying. If the first question means return to your father, here's what the second question implies. Renew your joy in the gospel. Renew your joy in the gospel. Please go back to the glorious basics and don't lose sight of those precious truths because your life flows out of them. Now, 
that implies that there was a moment in your life when you did believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Paul asks, where is the blessing that you felt? He is implying and speaking to people who have at one time felt a blessing. And I realize that in, in this room, or maybe with people listening to me online, there may be some of you who have never felt that blessing. And I just want to say, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him might not be destroyed, might not perish, but have everlasting life. And I just want to urge you to lay aside your doubt and your pride and to simply call out to Christ and say, please save me, Jesus. Receive the free gift of salvation that you can never earn. Just open up your hand. You don't pay for it. You don't earn it. You just believe. And know that because of what Christ has done, that you can be forgiven and that God welcomes you into his family. And, and that, that truth, that knowledge that you've been accepted into the beloved, that you've been welcomed into the family of God in Christ becomes the source of that sense of blessing. But for believers, he says, renew your joy in the gospel of Jesus. God doesn't want you to walk in misery and despair. He wants you to know that you're his son. Question one, how can you go back to slavery? Question two, how can you go back to misery? And then here's question number three from verses 16 and following. How can you go back to enmity? How can you go back to enmity? Paul says, am I your enemy now because I'm telling you the truth? That's no way to make enemies. Reading through verses 16 through 20, you can hear the hurt in Paul's tone. He loves these people, and now they're acting like he's the enemy, all because he just told them the truth. How do we get to this point? Well, he explains it in verse 17. I, honestly, uh, I don't really like the, the wording of the ESV. I think it kind of obscures what he's saying. The NIV is much clearer in verse 17. He captures the meaning of the original. Here's the NIV. Those people, verse 17, those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. Here's what's going on. The false brothers have swooped in to the regions of Galatia in order to zealously pursue the new Galatian believers and make them converts, not from paganism to the true gospel of Jesus Christ, but converts from Paul's gospel to this false gospel where you have to become a Jew and follow the law of Moses in order to be declared righteous. And the way they go about this is sort of ingenious. They try to shut the Galatian believers off from other believers. Uh, they make them feel isolated. Well, you guys, you know, I'm glad that you're taking steps in the right direction and you believed, about, you believed in Jesus. That's great. And, and I want you to come into the family of God. But, oh, not, you're not quite ready to do that yet, actually. Just stay over there because you haven't kept the law of Moses yet. And that's what you need to do in order for me to let you in. And by the way, all these other people that are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're not really telling you the whole truth, so you might as well isolate yourselves from them. And so what they're doing is they're zealously pursuing the Galatians in order to, uh, and cutting them off from everybody else in order to bring them in. It's kind of like junior high. Uh, sorry, junior hires, but I'm sure you experienced this from time to time. Uh, there are the cool kids, or the, the kids who think they're cool, right? They're not really cool. Uh, there are the kids who think they're cool and the kids who want to be a part of that group of kids who think they're cool, right? And what do the cool kids do? 
they sort of toy with the not cool kids. At least this is what happened when I was in junior high. Uh, they make them feel excluded. They communicate to them, hey, you could maybe one day be cool, but you're not cool yet. So in order for you to really be cool, you're going to have to show all kinds of loyalty to us, the cool kids. And you're going to have to show that you don't care about all these other people that aren't part of our group. And what, what is that? It's a bullying tactic, right? You're saying, hey, I'm going to include you in my little group only if you meet my standards. And you never meet the standard, right? And the false brothers have become really good at this. They're, they're bullies. They pursue the Galatians. They exclude them. They drive a wedge between them and other believers like Paul. And the people who are willing to tell the truth are the ones that come out looking like the enemy. But contrast that with the Apostle Paul. He genuinely loves them. He wants to be around them. Uh, listen again to verse 19. He says, My little children for whom I am in again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I mean, that is an arresting, intimate image. He is laboring over them. He longs to see them thrive. You know, one of the evidences that you're drifting away from the gospel is that you begin to drift away from your brothers and your sisters, and especially from leaders who love you by telling you the truth. We start to drift toward leaders who want to shut us away from the people who really love us and tell us the truth. Paul gives us a really clear idea of the kind of Christian leader that shares the heart of God and the kind of leader who lacks gospel grace. A graceless leader loves to be preeminent. He loves money. He lords it over the flock. He tries to dominate everyone. He wields guilt and fear in order to coerce certain behaviors. He doesn't like being around God's people. He just wants to control what they do. But that's not Paul. A grace-filled leader like Paul isn't like that. He, he might be willing to wound you with the truth, but he might tell you some things that you'd rather not hear, but he's only doing that because he loves you and he wants to see Christ formed in you. He cares about the flock. He wants to be present with the flock. They occupy a place in his heart. When the sheep stray, it hurts him deeply, because, not because he's on a power trip, but because he hates to see them lose the blessing that they have. See, the Galatians have begun to think of Paul as their enemy because they were losing sight of the gospel itself. This is a sign of a legalistic mind and a legalistic system. Think about it. In a church infected with the gospel of Jesus plus, the leaders wield guilt and shame, don't they? Maybe you've been a part of an organization like this. They put people in their place. They browbeat them to a legalistic person. This is the only purpose of authority is just to keep people in line. It assumes that people, even, even those who have the Holy Spirit, want to stray. And the only way to keep them from straying is to coerce and to corral them. And therefore, to a person who operates out of that legalistic mindset, there's always this adversarial relationship between the people and the leaders. This is what happens when we take the gospel out of the equation. Actually, this is the way that the world loves to cast off the restraints of biblical morality and see authority in the world. This is how the world views authority, too, right? Authority is bad. Authority is your enemy. And this way of thinking can infect the church too. It's a sure sign and symptom of a heart or a culture that's begun to lose their grip on the gospel. Uh, they return from gospel grace to slavery, and it always brings enmity amongst believers. I don't want to 
trust my, entrust myself to you. I don't want any accountability because I, I just, I, I'm suspicious and I think I'm going to lose even the joy that I have left if I give myself to God's people. So let me ask you this. Have you come to a place in your walk with Christ where you can see the goodness and the blessing of godly authority? Or is there an impulse to minimize its influence over you? Can you see the goodness and the blessing of godly accountability to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or do you look at it with suspicion? Now, I'm not saying that that's necessarily your fault. I am saying, though, that it is your problem. It's what you're doing when you operate that way is you're cutting yourself off from a blessing that God desires for you to have. And I would have you not do that. I can tell this is one area where many believers have a hard time trusting the Lord, either because they've been hurt by wicked leaders or because they just have this legalistic mindset altogether. See, when, when we read the commands of the, of the new covenant in Scripture, when we hear God say, I want you to do this, when we're around pastors or teachers, mature believers, do we bristle? Do we say, I don't want to be told what to do? Or do we lean in to the accountability that God has provided? That rejection of authority shows that we're either in a legalistic mindset with regard to authority or we've become accustomed to authority that operates from a legalistic kind of tyranny. Either way, though, it's unhealthy. And Paul says, do you really want to say no to me, to my authority, to, to the one who's telling you the truth? I know it hurts sometimes, but I'm telling you these things because I long to see your joy in the Lord. And here's what Paul's saying. This is the point of the question, our third question. Paul's saying, return to your father, renew your joy in the Lord, and then here's the third point, reconcile to your brothers. Reconcile to your brothers. Allow gospel grace to inform the way that you relate to the authority of Jesus and his word and the accountability of your brothers in Christ. You see, a heart that's fallen prey to the gospel of Jesus plus is a gospel that draws us away from a close relationship with our Father. It's a gospel that siphons off our joy. It's a gospel that makes us suspicious of one another and of authority and accountability in particular. But friends, listen, God, God's desire is not to get back at you for that. God's desire is not to make you feel bad for that. Ultimately, his desire is that you would return. His desire is that your joy would be renewed, that you would be reconciled with your brothers. So briefly, let's just talk about what that means and respond uh, to respond to a message like that. Where are you at? Where is your relationship with your father? Where is your joy? Are you walking in that sense of blessing, or have you left it far behind? What about your relationship with your brothers and sisters? Maybe you're here this morning, and you're a believer in Jesus, and you remember a time when you were just overwhelmed by the reality that God loves you even though you don't deserve it, that Christ is enough, that God is your Father, that the Spirit is with you, but those realities have begun to lose their luster. You feel far from God. You have for a long time. You've lost your joy. You're isolated from your brothers. It may be that the flow of gospel truth to and through your heart has dried up or has been contaminated with something else. You've been listening to that seductive and satanic whisper, and you're, it's, it's almost like you're under that death spell, even though you're made to walk in life. And so here are some things I would encourage you to do. These are just suggestions. There's lots of things we could do. But here's, here's a suggestion. First, take some time this week to be still before the Lord 
and ask him to expose the things that you've added or taken away from the gospel. I'll give you a couple of examples. Take some time this week to be still before the Lord and ask him to expose the things that you've added to or taken away from the gospel of Christ. Here's some examples. Maybe you've added conditions to the way that God relates to you. He loves me, but only if I fill in the blank. Here's another example. Maybe you've decided decided that the love of God in Christ isn't enough, and what you've added is another hope, another joy, a lesser joy. Like, I know God loves me, but God's love for me isn't enough for me, so what I also need is that car. I also need that job. I also need that relationship. So take some time. There's a lot of ways that we do this, but spend some time asking God this week, how have I added to or taken away from the simple truths of the gospel in my life? Here's another suggestion. Ask yourself, what is one truth I can savor this week that makes me happy in Christ? What is one truth that I can savor this week that makes me happy in Christ? Maybe it's the truth that my heavenly father is not like any earthly father. His love never stops and never dries up. He never loses patience. He has no uh, loss of intensity of his love for me because I'm in Christ. Maybe it's the truth that the people God has put into your life at Indian Creek Baptist Church are royal priests plucked from the slavery to Satan and and placed into this church to use their gifts to build up the body and reach our community. I don't know, but ask yourself, what's one truth that I can savor this week that makes me happy in the Lord? Third suggestion, choose three people and pray every day for Christ to be formed in them this week. Choose three people this week. Just pray every single day that Christ would be formed in them. Pray for them until you have the compassion of Christ for them, just like Paul. See, Christian, God loves you, not in a sappy, sentimental way. Sometimes in a way that that shouts at us and gets our attention and tells us to wake up. But God loves you. He loves you with an intensity and a zeal that will never dry up. He wants you to have a relationship with him. He wants you to know his joy and and experience that sense of blessing. He wants you to be right and and reconciled with your brothers. He wants you to be a part of gospel-shaped community. He doesn't want you to be emptied of strength and joy and fruitfulness by this death spell of Jesus plus fill in the blank. So let's allow gospel truth to break the spell this morning. Let's allow it to wake us up and pull us into a place of confident hope and joy and love in Christ. Let's walk in that blessing together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace in just everything that we've learned and and come to understand so far in this wonderful exposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ called the letter to the Galatians. And thank you for opening up a window into your heart for us. That we would not continue to wallow in despair. But that we would come to know and understand the joy and the blessing of really being a part of your family. Lord, this morning as we transition to a time of response, I pray that you would, your spirit would work and that your presence would be felt and understood, that you would keep away the whispers of the enemy, and that you would cause each one of us to return to you, to that place of blessing. 
Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.